This is the K-12 Engineering Education Podcast for September 19th, 2016. I'm Pius Wong, your host today. I'm in Austin speaking with Connie Hu in San Francisco. Connie is the CEO and co-founder of Arcbotics, an educational robotics company. Previously, she advised top global nonprofit leaders on strategic planning and K-12 STEM education at the Bridgespan Group. So Connie, welcome. Thank you for speaking to me over Skype today. Thank you so much for having me, Pius. This is great. Uh, so for those who don't know what your company is, what Arcbotics is, how would you describe it? I would say that uh, the mission of our company is to create uh, robots that are easy to use, that are affordable and open source. We want to make robotics learning as easy as possible. And so we have a line of kits as well as accessories to that mm-hmm. end. Are those kits intended for a particular type of customer, for teachers, for kids, for parents? Yeah, so the end user we're really uh, going for a STEM educator, so fourth grade through college level. Um, after school programs, we're also teaching STEM, a um, variety of educators there, parents who want to prepare their children. And also we're getting a lot of adults who are wanting to learn robotics and programming for the first time, but, you know, maybe missed that train a decade ago because there weren't a lot of good resources out there and they're teaching themselves with their robots as well. So. Oh, wow. So a lot of hobbyists. Yeah, definitely. Would you say that your most popular products are those those kits then and not necessarily the, it sounds like you also teach or you have services. So, I mean, they're, they come very much together. So our two main robot kits are Hexi the Hexapod and Sparky the Easy Robot and they're the two most popular by far, especially Sparky for schools. Why is that? Uh, lot, lots of reasons, but uh, so for Sparky, <laughs> we hear from our teachers that the main reason why they purchased is um, all the features, all of the sensors, because a lot of times they might pay for something and it sounds really cool at the beginning, but frankly, it just comes with one to two sensors and then you run out of things to do after an hour with your students. And so they look at ours and it comes with, you know, over 25 sensors and actuators, a lot of different features. And also we provide 100 free lessons going from beginner to advanced across a spectrum of topics. So they feel like, okay, I don't have to invest a lot of time to create my own curriculum. You already give it to me. Um, And also it comes with a lot of different software environments tailored to the different ages. So, you know, fourth grade teacher or sixth grade teacher might start with our drag and drop programming software. It's a lot easier for younger students to get into. And then more advanced levels, um, whether they themselves progress or middle and high school students might do the Arduino software. And so we're, and also we just, um, launched a partnership with Codebender to do Chromebooks too, because a lot of schools now are asking about Chromebook software. So I think it's just that whole ecosystem and we have active forums where teachers and other users are posting their own projects all the time. Um, we have this uh, fantastic YouTube playlist of about 50 videos, all from our community. All the schools, all the parents who posted up their projects, and it's really cool to see that. So I think they're excited about, you know, just that whole ecosystem. So it sounds like you have a pretty sizable team, and you started a while ago. That's how you were able to do all this stuff. When did you start, and uh, <laughs> did it start as big as you are now? <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, so we started four years ago, and um, at that time, my co-founder, who's Joe, he's our CTO, um, and I both were working full time and we had a prototype for our first robot, which later became Hexi the Hexapod. 
And we put it on Kickstarter because we weren't even sure if this idea of making robotics easy and affordable was actually popular. Just, you know, at that time, this was before the whole hype curve for robotics for STEM occurred. And so we just weren't really sure. And so we put it on Kickstarter. Um, our initial goal for that was 50 units, $13,000. Uh, we ended up blowing past that on the first day. And by the end of the campaign had raised $170,000. And so Joe quit his job. <laughs> I took a little bit more time because I also wanted to finish my projects that I was working on because I was working with clients too in STEM. Um, but then I quit my job too. And then, you know, started doing this full time. And um, yeah, so it, it, you know, we really heard from the customers uh, that this was something that they wanted. And um, then we started working on our second product after Hexy the Hexapod was shipped. Sparky really grew very much out of what we heard from our um, first Kickstarter community. A lot of them, Hexy was designed specifically for the hobbyist market. It was designed for users 15 and above who are who already have some introduction to programming and are doing advanced programming and advanced robotics. But a lot of them, you know, were parents who were like, I really... You know, my kids watched me build Hexy, had a really great time, but do you have something for them because there really isn't anything out there? So we created Hexy, um, also did a Kickstarter. We raised $190,000 there. Oh. And, um, you know, since then, it's been really explosive growth. We're now uh, carried by over 25 distributors worldwide. Um, we're in over a thousand schools and used by some of the best universities like Stanford, also UT Austin, used Berkeley at one point, um, Purdue, <laughs> yeah. Northwestern, um, MIT. So it's, it's been really great to see. So Kickstarter was pretty pivotal in starting Archibotics, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, for hardware companies, access to capital, right, is the first, first big question. Also, you want to do something that is validated by your market because there's a lot of inventory costs up front, a lot of R&D. You have to purchase a lot of special equipment. Like for us, you know, we had to get a huge laser cutter in order to prototype Hexi, and that is not, you know, cheap. And then 3D printers. Uh, now there's a lot of options, but back then, you know, there were only a couple of really good options um, to do it, and that's very expensive. So, you know, before you invest all of that research uh, and money, you want to see if it's something that people want. So it was definitely very pivotal. I can tell by what you're saying, someone in your team has business experience, market validation and all that stuff. Did you come from that world of, of raising capital and knowing how to run a business? Yeah, so that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, before this, I worked at a consulting firm called the Bridgeman Group. And they do strategic planning and business planning for nonprofit foundations and philanthropists. And specifically, you know, they look at um, strategic initiatives, um, how to increase social impact. And I focused uh, specifically in K-12 STEM education, in addition to other things. And Bridgeband works with some of the best um, foundations and nonprofits out there like Gates and YMCA. So that was just such a fantastic uh, learning experience for me to learn how to do this. But definitely, I would say most of what I do right now has been trial by fire or just me Googling, <laughs> okay, what is this thing this retailer asked me to give them? I did. I've never heard about this before. So there's been a, mostly that. <laughs> so what makes Arcbotics unique? I think our focus has always been one open source. 
of the new companies that have come don't have that philosophy. And um, for us, that's been really pivotal from the beginning. And in fact, um, we had to walk away from a lot of investors who were interested in our company because of that open source aspect. We didn't want to budge on that. So that's the big one, I would say. Um, the second one is uh, making sure that we have excellent documentation and full tutorials. Uh, there's also a lot of products out there that might have some cool features, but then there isn't any documentation or especially lessons for teachers, so it's not ready to use in the classrooms. And and also, we've seen a lot of products that didn't start out for education, but have since pivoted to that. You know, they started out as a really cool consumer gadget and uh, transitioned to STEM when they maybe saturated that market and or weren't successful in that market and then later just sort of put up a new landing page and said, now we're STEM. And so there's been a lot of that as well. So so that brings up several questions, actually. One is I'm wondering who writes those educational lessons. Do you have teachers on your team? Yeah, so we've worked with different teachers over the years to create the full set, um, people who specifically uh, focus on teaching STEM. And we ourselves, too, also wrote some of them with our experience. More of Joe doing that because Joe, who's our CTO, um, had a lot of experience teaching STEM and Arduino. Uh, So prior to Arphotics, uh, he used to teach like intro to Arduino classes at um, a makerspace out in Boston, which is actually where we started originally. And so, um, yeah, so working with a whole bunch of people as well as ourselves. Yeah, that's great because what I hear a lot from other business people like yourself and teachers is that there's oftentimes not communication between the two. And so lessons that a business might write might not be in the best condition. Yeah, exactly. We're really focused on actually creating good educational outcomes, social impact, um, not just, you know, more units. Throwing stuff out there. We might see, yeah. So why is open source, that open source movement important to you? We just believe that if you buy a product, you own it, and you should own it for life, and you should be able to do anything you want with it. And um, seeing some of the projects that, let's say, parents or educators have done with our products have been some of the most fun things to see. Like, uh, for example, um, the University of uh, Boulder, Colorado, uh, there's a professor there, uh, Professor Carell, who had his students create a telepresence robot with Sparky, hmm. and they you know, took down the head and strapped on a smartphone, created their own <laughs> software, and had the smartphone, you know, they could visualize what the Sparky was seeing as it was going through. And so it's just really cool for us to see things like that. We don't want to limit what people can do. And also it facilitates a lot more learning if our community can talk to each other, which is definitely what they do on their forums. Hmm. And originally, I know we're jumping around here, but I wanted to ask you, why was robotics education even important to you guys in the first place? What prompted the Kickstarter? Uh, I guess that question depends on how far back we want to go when we were sure. five or when we were. <laughs> well, let, let's start with the simple answer, maybe like right before you started the Kickstarter. And then I'll ask you about, about the childhood questions. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, I was born in now. <laughs> um, so yeah. So for both of us, we came from, um, different places with that. So for me, um, my uh, research and my work that I did at Bridgeband really showed me that, one, this is a very important issue, and two, there are some fantastic providers out there, uh, especially on the nonprofit side, who are trying to fulfill that gap in STEM education. But when you look at the kinds of technical products that are out there, especially in hardware, they're not designed for teachers with that in mind from the beginning. And um, there were only just a few big companies out there doing it at that time. It was like Lego and Parallax, um, Pololu, but there weren't uh, 
Arduino was already very popular at that time. Robotics was starting to get popular. There wasn't any Arduino-based open source robots. And so, yeah, so for me, it was uh, seeing that gap. And for Joe, he's loved robots his whole life and wasn't sure exactly how to make that more of a reality. Mm. You know, so he had been tinkering on the side from his job with Hexi the Hexapod and had developed it, but wasn't sure how this would turn into a product or a company, especially an education-based one. So we, it was a really good partnership. So it sounds like for Joe, he did have that childhood drive to STEM education in the first place. Yeah, so it's interesting. Like, both of us professionally have very different backgrounds, but um, where our interests stem from as a child is very similar. So both of us are super nerds, like super, super nerds <laughs> growing up. But both of us are fairly limited by how far um, self-teaching could go because of our geographies or what was available to us in our schools. Like for me, um, I loved math, I loved genetics, I loved programming as a kid, but I grew up in Kansas. Um, we didn't, you know, I went to an excellent public school. It was really great, but it just didn't have a lot of resources and I capped out very early with what I could do. Uh, like for example, I, um, you know, I tested, I started testing out of math classes when I was in fifth grade, but by 10th grade, I ran out of classes to take. And when I tried to learn programming, I became really interested. And, I, and at that time, PHP was more popular. I was like, oh, I want to learn PHP. There weren't any programming classes in my high school. Mm. So I, I had to look at the local community college, and there was one. And, um, you know, my mom scrounged enough money for me to enroll in that class, and I loved it. I remember thinking loops were really magical, but, you know, it was really difficult to pay for that one class. So then I just didn't continue. And... You know, and so it sort of stopped there. And for Joe, it was even worse. I mean, he grew up uh, in very rural Maine. And the city where he grows up in now, the population is 8,000 people. So really, he had even fewer options available to him than I did and had to try to teach himself everything. And so for both of us, um, when we sat down and thought about what kind of experience we want to create for our users, it's really about we want them to sit down and be able to, one, teach themselves or have a parent sit down and teach them with our lessons without having had that experience or sorry, without having had that knowledge themselves. Right. You know, they can, and they can also progress. It isn't just something that they'll pay for and then an hour later they're done. It's something they can grow into because we didn't have that. Yeah. Are you planning more products, more robots that um, will help kids learn programming and, and engineering? Yeah, so, I mean, I think Sparky right now, we designed it too well. <laughs> uh, so we just have such a range of lessons there. So our focus for Sparky is to expand the curriculum and expand the software available for it. We're not thinking about doing a, a different Sparky, per se, because there's really no need. We just see this as an excellent product, and there's so much to do there. Um, on the hobbyist side, we're actually planning a launch for our third robot kit. It's going to be a humanoid robot. Oh, wow. And the goal of that one is um, to bring the $15,000 humanoid robot capabilities down to about 500 Wow, that's incredible. And that's coming up how soon again? This fall. Wow. When I was at UT to get my master's, I was trying to do humanoid robotics, and I can imagine the expense that goes into making something like that. Do you have any strategies that you can share? I know it's proprietary, but how are you going to do that? How are you going to make it cheap and accessible? Well, that's something that is our specialty, you know, like basically taking very popular platforms out there, rebuilding it from the ground up, using a lot of design for manufacturing techniques, and also um, open sourcing it also. 
Hmm. Uh, to do that. I mean, it's just basically what we've been doing from the beginning. For us, it's not too difficult now, only because we've already, like, for example, we already have all our 3D printers. We already have um, a lot of the machinery that we need for that because we invested, so it's not too difficult. It takes time to get yeah. Right. yeah, definitely. We've been working on it now for almost two years. Yeah. I guess along those lines, what are some of the biggest challenges you've faced in bringing this company up or, or getting your, your products used I think two big things. One, um, I mentioned earlier, is the access to capital part. Uh, and so after our Kickstarter launch, there we had a lot of investor interest, of course, from seeing that, that crazy growth. And also we nailed a lot of retail partnerships early on, and so a lot of investors were interested in that. And we thought, okay, yeah, this is very expensive to do as a hardware company. How do you fund the next production batch? How do you do R&D for all these things? But when we talked to investors... They didn't like the fact that we were open source and we were not going to budge on that. Um, they didn't like the fact that we gave away all of our curriculum for free. They didn't like that either because, you know, curriculum is something that is often charged for very expensively. And we didn't believe in that. So we had to walk away from all that. So I think that was really hard for us at the beginning to make that choice. And so we just had to be really creative. You know, we went to Kickstarter a second time. Um, we moved to Shenzhen for a year and a half. <laughs> Uh, wow. also for manufacturing supply chain, um, but also definitely to uh, save on the cost of living here because sure. we were in Boston, right? And so that was a fraction of the cost in Shenzhen. Um, but, you know, we had some fantastic retail partners who worked with us early on and, uh, you know, really believed in what we were doing. So had some great payment terms. Um, so just being really scrappy and being very uh, focused I think there are a lot of other people who are really into the open source movement too. And if they are an entrepreneur similarly trying to get capital, do you have any tips for convincing people of the value of that? Are there tips that you you can share? Well, so we didn't take investment. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So only Kickstarter. Exactly. So I'm not sure if I'm a good example of that because we never took investment, you know, because we could have found the alignment and the mission. But there's such a wide variety of investors out there. I would say that, um, you know, maybe look beyond, look for an angel who really aligns with your interests first. Don't, don't worry too much about things like the exit. Just really focus on creating a good product and having someone who believes in what you're doing. Um, we've had other people, friends of ours that we've seen be successful with that route. But for us, it just wasn't the right thing. You know, we wanted to do things in a very specific way because that's what we heard from our community. That's also what we personally believed in. And, yeah, it just worked out. So. Yeah, no, that's great. So that second uh, challenge that you faced, what was that? So I would say letting more people know about us because a lot of our competitors who are a lot more well-funded um, are taking out expensive ads across every single channel, and they're letting people know just by sort of spamming with all these different ads. And for us, it's a lot harder because we're a small startup. And so figuring out, you know, how we can get the word out, um, because a lot of times teachers aren't even able to compare our product next to our competitors because they don't know. And uh, so for us, you know, we rely very heavily on word of mouth and very strong referrals from our existing community. And our existing community also is very active on social media. They're tweeting, they're posting Facebook photos, they're putting up YouTube videos of all their projects. So that's been really great. But I would say that that's definitely a big challenge when you decide to go this route and stay you know, true to what you want to do. But um, everyone else is competing with giant marketing budgets. <laughs>
There's an important issue that I wanted to raise with you because you are um, in the engineering education business side of things. There are a lot of teachers and educators who are oftentimes a little distrustful of business or commercial entities because maybe they feel like they're always trying to sell them something and they don't really know how to educate. Do you have any ideas about uh, what might be causing this distrust or or ideas of how to mitigate this distrust between these, these two sides? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me personally, I experienced the stark divide a lot when I transitioned into arcbotics. Like when I was at Bridgespan, Bridgespan themselves, they are a nonprofit that work with other nonprofit providers. And so I, I, t- I spoke with a lot of teachers during that work and, and it was like, oh, you're, you're one of us because you're in the nonprofit side. But then when I left to do a product to fulfill a gap that I saw from the research that I did, suddenly it was teachers were very, uh, just did not want to speak to me because they, you know, it's, oh, you're a business, you know, you're a company. And so that has been really hard. Um, and I think that perhaps, I think this is actually related to the larger trend of how the kinds of businesses that people are starting have shifted, which is that previously teachers would have dealt with very large monolithic companies that have standard sales representatives that are spamming them with catalogs and calls, and that might be a really negative experience. Mm. But for us, you know, we, and uh, even in 2012, but still even in 2016, the way that we're running our company is is new and becoming increasingly popular, which is you can start it with a lot less capital. You don't need investment. You can do a lot of these things. So I think teachers and schools aren't used to dealing with companies with our makeup. And so still have a lot of that very understandable, understandable mistrust from the previous interaction. So, mm. um, I think, you know, the, the onus is really up to us to try to make sure that every teacher that interacts with us at every step of the way has a really positive experience and to see really what we're about. And so one of the new initiatives that we just launched this summer is offering um, a 60 day free trial to teachers actively teaching who are interested in using Sparky in their classrooms. Like, it's totally free. They don't have to pay anything. They get a Sparky in person for 60 days. They can do all the lessons and all of that because we want to show people that we're really serious about our mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's just one of the things. But I don't know. It's It feels like a lot larger of a thing that we're battling. Yeah. Do you get um, feedback from those teachers? Like, that seems like an excellent way to to build up some kind of relationship. Oh, yeah. They're very thankful. They're very thankful. But it goes back to the earlier issue I mentioned about just getting our product in front of them at all because we don't have those really large, like, you know, marketing budgets to get in front of them. So they don't even know about something like a free trial or Sparky at all. So um, Mm. I'm not really sure how to how to bridge that. And the other thing I've also seen, too, from teachers is a lot of those companies, too, the large monolithic corporations that have been around forever selling these legacy education products, price the retail price so that it's meant to be discounted significantly for teachers because they never meant to sell it at that price because their margin is crazy anyway. Mm. And that was a complete opposite for us. Like, we don't want to do a discount game. We definitely don't have nearly nearly the same margins as they do. Ours is a lot slimmer um, but because we want to make our products value-packed and affordable. And so that's been hard for us sometimes when teachers are used to really large discounts. And I just have to say, I'm really sorry. Like, you know, this is the real price for this product. We give you everything and all the lessons. But So I'm not really sure how to uh, 
how to solve that per se. We're, we just are very consistent in our message when we interact with them, and we want to let our product and our community speak for themselves. You sound like the mom-and-pop robotics education store, if that's a thing. <laughs> um, a bit. I don't think anyone's ever called us that before. But well, like in that in that description of, of the business, it's like you've got these big players, and then you got like you're a new new player essentially and you've got a different philosophy of about things so that's what it sounds like yeah definitely okay well i hope that uh podcasts like this might promote the discussion a little bit more hopefully yeah and so if teachers who ultimately are going to be a big chunk of people who are interested in your product if teachers want to get a hold of it or get a hold of you or the company, how can they do that? Yeah, so they can visit our website at arcbotics.com, or they can contact me personally at Connie at arcbotics.com. But our website has a lot of information on Sparky. We also make all the lessons available before anyone purchases so they can see what they're getting. Cool. That, I think, is it, Connie. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for talking. Yeah, thank you so much. As always, you can find the links to some of the items we mentioned today in the show notes or on the website k12engineering.net. If you liked this episode, please help me out by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes or sending me a message about your thoughts. You can also post your thoughts on Reddit in the new Engineering Education subreddit. Until next time, take care. The views expressed in this podcast are our own, and they are not necessarily the opinions of any schools, companies, or other groups with which we might be connected. Our theme music comes from School Zone by The Honorable Sleaze, and our closing music is from Late for School by Bleep Tour. Both are used under Creative Commons attribution licenses. Mm-hmm.